Hi, I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Isiri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at wortfm.org. Thanks. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. I'm Sarah Gabler, filling in for Douglas Haynes. A few weeks ago, I reported for WORT News on the successful strike by Lining Kugel's Brewers at the company's Chippewa Falls location. After nearly two months on the picket line, the 40 employees gained better contracts from their parent company, Molson Coors. The fact that Line and Kugels is owned by Molson Coors surprised me. I thought my summer shandy was a small regional treat, more craft than corporate. But the line between craft and corporate beer is complicated by the consolidation of markets in the past five to 10 years. And brewers who work at large macro breweries like those owned by Molson Coors or Anheuser-Busch InBev, have a history of labor organizing. This much I learned from my reporting on Lining Kugels. But I also wanted to know the fate of labor organizing in craft breweries, the small, friendly tap rooms near my home, where my friends work, where I spend my money, and pat myself on the back for contributing to local artisanal business. So today, we're talking about unions and the craft beer segment of the beer industry. Joining us is Dave Infante, a journalist whose sharp and spicy coverage of this topic for the New York Times, Fast Company, Splinter News, HuffPost, The Guardian, and VinePair gave me a better understanding of the economic and cultural underpinnings of what's on tap. Thanks for joining us this morning, Dave. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Great. Well, let's dive right in. Craft beer is just one segment of the beer industry. So to set the scene for our conversation today, can you tell us what are we talking about when we talk about craft beer? Sure. It's a big question and people at different parts of the industry or different relationships to the industry have different opinions on it, but there is no one legal definition of craft beer it's ultimately a marketing term more than anything so you're kind of in a potter stewart know it when you see it type situation um the brewers association which is the largest trade group representing the craft uh brewing industry in the united states has their own definition of it um that you know dictates that the businesses are, are small uh, and independent um, breweries, uh, typically or like majority involved in the production of traditional beer. Um, those definitions have kind of changed over the years, but that's how they currently triangulate um, who is and is not eligible for membership in their organization. Um, that has, you know, a, a brewery like Leinenkugel would not be considered uh, eligible for inclusion in the Brewers Association because it's owned by Molson Coors. Um, other, you know, there are about 9,800 craft breweries across the country, according to the Brewers Association. Um, any of them that do not have a majority owner uh, from another corporation that's 
you know, involved in the uh, in the beer industry would be eligible, um, at least broadly speaking. Um, in terms of like how we experience it as drinkers, craft brewing or craft beer is, you know, marked by I think a more artisanal approach to production methods and ingredient sourcing, more experimental, um, you know, brewing. Uh, styles and, and varietals that change with the seasons. Um, they're, they've become, you know, quite popular for tap rooms and the tap room experience, like you mentioned. That's something that, you know, the, the craft brewing industry in, the, in this country has more or less pioneered. That was not a thing that really existed prior to the rise of, of craft brewing as a style. Um, in the United States, although there were some brew pubs and, and whatnot, but that, you know, a little bit different there. Um, but it's a, this big, you know, $26 billion industry that's broadly fractured across, you know, like I said, about 9,800 different shops, each of them having an average of just a small number of employees uh, and producing very, very little volumes of beer. Um, but together it adds up to mm, about, uh, you know, a dozen percent uh, of the market share of beer overall um, in the United States, volume-wise. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a small but significant subsection of that overall beer uh, marketplace here in the United States. Thanks for that, Dave. Um, I'm interested in what you describe as the like experience driving what counts as craft beer. You've um, you've written that there are like kind of three qualities you call the the entrepreneurial mythos, the shared David versus Goliath purpose, and the geographical dispersion. These you know 9,800 breweries you know you know all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are those are qualities that certainly define you know, my perspective on the industry, and, and this is getting away, I think, a little bit from the Brewers Association's official definition, but my perspective is that, you know, the industry, it certainly exists and is distinct from, um, you know, kind of the most uh, commodified and corporatized representations or iterations of brewing in this country. Um, you know, you can very easily tell the difference between even the largest craft breweries like Sierra Nevada um, and the the facilities of even one uh, Anheuser Busch InBev production plant, right? Like these are not these are not comparable um, operations in terms of their size and scope. Um, it gets a lot more difficult to identify the difference between Goose Islands you know, Chicago plant, which is owned by Anheuser-Busch and has been owned by Anheuser-Busch since 2011, um, and, you know, uh, uh, Revolution Brewing is the name of a, a brewery in Chicago that is that is very popular. That, that's independently owned. Um, I think to the average consumer, it's not nearly as clear the difference between those two brands. Um, one has, you know, the backing of the world's largest beer company, the other is uh, does not. <laughs> um, so I think like that's sort of where the waters get muddy, and you know acolytes of the craft brewing industry um, for years have sort of 
flag this as unfair or as a existential threat um, to you know the the movement quote unquote that they uh, they see themselves a part of. Um, but the reality is, it's uh, to the average consumer. I think is it, it unfortunately uh, is maybe not. It doesn't really matter that much, or it hasn't mattered as much. Um, what you what you asked about uh, with regards to sort of the the entrepreneurial mythos, the David and Goliath, you know, uh, shared battle. I think those are really were really effective components. Uh, last decade of craft brewing's pitch to the American drinking public, right? Like you, they offered an opportunity to participate uh, directly in like sort of a form of um, the defiance of commodity forces, right? There's this opportunity to, to really choose what you drink and spend, you know, your dollars in a way that comports with your values or seems to, um, and that propelled craft brewing in the United States in part propelled it, you know, to, to a great level of success. A lot of people made a lot of money and, um, there was a real boom time over the course of the last decade, uh, in the industry. A lot of, you know, the breweries are springing up. There's more every year, um, openings far outpace closures um and you start to see craft beer as a product appear more or less everywhere you want to be drinking right it shows up on airplanes it shows up on you know amtrak trains um you can go into corner stores and you know different parts of any city and and uh and find a decent beer selection you can find tap rooms um basically everywhere you go uh these are all things that sort of um, it are attendant to um, craft beer's boom last decade. More recently, uh, the industry has gotten more competitive and, and has consolidated, and um, American drinkers' tastes have changed uh, to some extent and shifted away from those types of products and more towards uh, what you'd think of as like commodity product, you know, for hard seltzer is one example, but there are many others. Um, and it's also shifted towards some stuff that isn't fermented at all. So spirits-based canned cocktails and uh, what are known as ready-to-drink beverages, RTDs, um, that, you know, are based on distilled spirit and not on fermented uh, fermented, you know, uh, alcohol that you'd find in, in beer uh, or hard tea or hard seltzer, et cetera, et cetera. So the beer industry as a whole has faced, you know, a slowdown in growth um, and craft brewing as a part of the beer industry has experienced uh, that same slowdown. It's still doing, you know, doing fine, but it's not growing at the moment. It just is kind of at a point of um, stagnation is probably too strong of a word, but uh, it's at a point of sort of uh, retrenchment, I guess would be a better way to say it, where the old pitch hasn't been working nearly as well with drinkers. And I think craft brewers, many of them uh, have struggled a little bit to figure out what comes next and, and what they have to offer and how to, how to talk about it and how to package it because some of those narratives that worked, you know, a decade ago are no longer as salient to, to the American consumer. Right. Which might be 
part of why like the consumer might not see the difference between Revolution and Goose Island in Chicago, as you um, gave the example earlier. Um, you're listening to yeah. A Public Affair on Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM. Our guest today is journalist Dave Infante, and we're talking about unions in the craft brewing industry. If you'd like to join the conversation, please call 608-256-2001. All right. Um, Dave, I've heard some people talk about the craft brewing industry as one of like lifestyle labor or part of the passion economy. And here we're maybe switching gears from like what defines the segment of the industry to what it's like to work in the industry. Um, so I just want to hear from you. What is this like lifestyle labor and brewing mean? And what are the effects of viewing craft beer this way? So there's this idea that uh, I forget who coined the term, but um, a one of these ideas is like, yeah, sort of lifestyle or like leisure um, time or like leisure labor. The idea basically is that there are sort of social uh, benefits in terms of status or in terms of, um, you know, scheduling or, or um, you know, different cultural bonuses that come from doing certain kinds of labor um, versus others. And that can be uh, really attractive to a certain type of uh, laborer or a certain type of worker. Um, also to a, an ownership class, right? Like people who want to work in a uh, certain space because they think it's cool or they think it's, um, you know, it matches their ethos or it's something that they're personally interested in. Um, they may they may gravitate towards those types of roles even if there's not, you know, a salary that makes it theoretically competitive on an apples-to-apples apples basis with other uh, with other jobs that have similar tasks and have similar responsibilities. And so if you think about um, brewing in the, in the context of the actual sort of production methods and uh, the responsibilities, it, it's typically, you know, I think it would align with a description of light manufacturing work. Like it, it is a production role you're working in, um, a manufacturing facility, uh, you know, a factory, for lack of a better term. And those jobs, uh, you know, they have sort of a certain pay scale. Um, brewery jobs, craft brewing jobs, um, typically do not meet that pay scale. Oftentimes those jobs are compensated less than you would be making if you were working in a um, a factory that, you know, was making, was producing widgets, right? Like if you're producing India pale ale and you, you're working in a place uh, that is quote unquote cool and has cultural cachet, um, you often are doing so at a, at a discount to your employer um, because more people want those jobs. Um, and so that's where you get into a conversation about, you know, the passion economy or, or lifestyle labor um, it, the idea is that there's benefits to holding jobs like this that outstrip merely the, you know, the, the formal compensation package that the, the brewery is offering to its employees. That's the idea there. It's, it's one that I think craft beer in the United States has certainly um, 
you know, seen play out. And in my reporting, I've spoken to a lot of folks who, uh, who have kind of gotten into the industry because they loved beer and, and, uh, you know, not just in the sense of like, Oh gosh, I love drinking it, blah, blah, blah. More in the sense of like, this is really cool. I'm passionate about this product. I've gone and studied it. Um, you know, I have, I have a skill set around it. I taste beer. I, I know how to produce beer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I want to, I want to work in this business as a career. Um, and those are those, those same people often after five, 10 years doing it, or even last, maybe who knows, um, they have often told me that they find that there's a mismatch between the industry that we know as consumers and the industry that they experience as workers. Um, it's not nearly as cool or even if it is cool, you can't pay rent with just having a cool job, right? You need money to pay rent. And if rent is going up and, and your salary isn't, um, then the cachet of your role as a, as a sellerman or as a bottler or whatever, um, or brewer, um, at a, at, you know, the cool brewery in your city, well, that doesn't really do you much good. Um, and so I think that there's based on, you know, again, my reporting and having spoken with a lot of people who work in breweries and, and some scholars who study, you know, the labor industry or the labor movement, um, within sort of this, uh, with this, within this industry and within other similar craft or artisanal industries like third wave coffee or like, you know, a bean to bar chocolate, things like this. Um, you, you come across a level of, uh, maybe disillusionment would be a way to say it, just sort of frustration at the fact that um, workers feel as though they're working as hard as any, you know, as other uh, uh, colleagues in other market disciplines, but they're not being compensated accordingly because, um, because craft beer, craft brewing has always kind of had that aura of uh, coolness attached to it that has inadvertently, you know, help to um, suppress wages because it attracts a broader labor pool um, on, on the strength of its, uh, on the strength of its appeal. Yeah. And in that sense, thinking about working in the brewing industry or the craft brewing industry as a form of light manufacturing work, like you said, seems to kind of diminish that aura around the industry's coolness or whatever. Um, that kind of leads naturally to my next question, um, which um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit of something you wrote before. You say, um, it's a lot easier to tell if a craft beer tastes good than it is to tell if the brewery that made it is treating employees well. And so I just want to hear from you, based on what you've talked to other folks and in your experience reporting, what do workers in craft breweries have to gain from unionizing? What would it mean for their employers to treat them well? Oh, man, you did your research. What was that from? My story in Splinter? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good Good on you. Um, yeah, so I think, like, there's a couple things going on there. First of all, it speaks to that level of sort of um, re-commodification of craft beer as a product, right? Like, it starts out as this bold sort of uh, escape from or deviation from the consolidated commodity uh, product that had, you know, sort of passed for beer with Americans for three or four decades before, um, you know, craft brewing came along and started to disrupt that space. Um, you know, 
that then turns uh, 20, 30 years later, by, by midway through you know, last decade, um, you see both craft breweries themselves getting fairly large and having just sort of an explosion of other uh, you know, smaller craft breweries around that are kind of like crowding into the marketplace. Um, so there's more options than ever. Um, and then also you see big corporations like the Molten Coors and the Anheuser-Busch InBevs and Heineken's of the world um, and Constellation Brands, which owns Corona in the United States. Um, they start jumping into the space with acquisitions because they this is the hot thing and they want to have an offering, you know, that they can sell against, right? Um all of that, all of those forces sort of conspire to make craft beer as a product look a little bit more monolithic to um, the American drinking public. There's pros and cons to this. The pro is that Americans understand more about, like, the idea of craft beer maybe than ever before, right? They understand why they should be drinking it or the why it has a fuller flavor than, you know, the average adjunct light lager, um, and they've heard all the stories about, you know, the David and Goliath stuff and the, and the funky ingredients and the, uh, the scrappy upstarts. Right. And so they, they, they've sort of primed that they've been primed on this narrative. The problem is that, you know, the flip side of the coin is that not all breweries are uh, like true to that narrative. Like any other business, you know, there are plenty of breweries that are, are not so good that that have bad business practices that have owners who don't treat workers right that um you know uh are cutting corners on quality and production methods um that's not the majority i've no reason to believe that it's a big you know uh, it's the majority of the of the many breweries in this country but it, they're out there right and and that's not endemic to craft brewing that's just the nature of an industry um I think the challenge then becomes, you know, as a drinker certainly, but more more to the point as a uh, as a journalist who covers the space, the challenge then becomes to try to figure out ways to um, elucidate the difference between what people sort of think about the industry at large, and then what's actually going on within the industry. And one of the ways that I've tried to do that in my reporting is is talking to workers is is hearing how like the actual you know work of producing beer uh is going and and whether it matches up with the pitch that breweries are you know putting out into the world and selling their beer uh you know with that you know that image um so that's the um that's the i think the core disconnect that has started to emerge and show maybe some cracks in the foundation, so to speak, um, in the craft brewing industry over the last five years or so. Um, and that has coincided, I think, not coincidentally with a slowdown in the marketplace, um, you know, for these beers, uh, as this stuff gets less sort of boom, you know, uh, uh, it's less of an exciting boom time and it's more just settling into a mature or maturing industry um there's less willingness for workers to look past you know perceived mistreatments um or or inequitable uh arrangements that they had been previously tolerating um it's just why would you 
you know, maybe in when everyone there's an enormous amount of excitement around the business uh, and it seems like everything is growing and it seems like there's tons and tons of opportunity. Uh, you may be more willing to take a, a lower paid position um, for a while because you may be planning to move on and start your own brewery yourself uh, sometime in the future. Um, when that possibility becomes less likely or when that opportunity lo no longer looks as attractive, um, you often see workers, looking around taking stock of their surroundings be like oh i'm actually like this is this is where i work this isn't just a temporary thing this is my career and i may never i may never be an owner i may never move on to an ownership or you know group or opportunity where i can run my own brewery my own way um and if that's the case then i need to be focused more on improving you know my uh my work conditions my compensation my treatment at the place that I work at um, because I may not be moving on. And that's where you start to see uh, organizing efforts, you know, really kind of begin to gestate is um, as, as that, you know, sort of shift happens. And then certainly as the pandemic hits, um, brew workers at some craft beer companies uh, decide that they, they'd like to organize uh, unions because, they just aren't able to get through to management. Um, they, they've had, had frustrating experiences trying to enact change, uh, you know, individually or on a, on a personal level, having requested things from managers and, and not gotten them. Or, um, you know, they feel as though like they're owed, many of them are owed raises and, and they're not receiving them. Any of the normal grievances that you typically hear. Um, and they start looking at uh, collective bargaining as a union to be a more viable option to, um, to pursue those positive or progressive changes uh, at their workplace. So that's why you're seeing it happen. I mean, whether or not breweries, craft breweries, like should have unions, I think is a little bit of a trickier question because there's like this maxim in the labor movement that is it goes along the lines of like the companies that get unions are the companies that need them right like there's this this idea that i'm not fully you know cynical about that i think there are business models that maybe do work without the presence of a union i think that there are equitable arrangements that um you know uh, brewery owners and and laborers can come to uh, that doesn't involve, you know, forming a union and bargaining collectively. It, it, there's, I think it's out there. Uh, I think there are a few examples here and there. Um, worker stock options uh, or like revenue sharing or um, uh, cooperatives. These models do exist. Um, so I, I'm a little reluctant to say that like every craft brewery should be unionized um, just because I, I would like to leave at least a little bit of intellectual room uh, for like other models that may fit the, the, you know, the, the, that particular business better than others, right? Like a blanket solution of unionization across the industry uh, maybe isn't as, um, Maybe that would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater a little bit or whatever euphemism you want to use there. Um, but I do think that when we see 
how it actually has played out in breweries that want unions where workers vote to have unions um there's pretty good reasons for them <laughs> for them to want those and they have struggled to create change any other way and this is their way of of forcing and demanding change yeah yeah i mean we can leave room for the complexity of multiple models within these small businesses, but tell me about some of the protections that workers are asking for when they do decide to start a union from better pay, you know, not just getting paid in low fills or um, shift beers, et cetera, staffing policies, um, et cetera, protections from rampant sexism. You can take that any direction you want. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think, so all of the things you just mentioned are certainly um on the table uh stuff that you hear from craft brewing or that i've heard in my reporting from craft brewing workers um some of the big ones are better you know just better physical working conditions with regards to safety and uh like physicality of the job um you know i think that there's this perception that um you know big corporations like anheuser-busch InBev are you know pure evil um that's i don't really make that type of moral judgment but even if you do the fact of the matter is large you know uh like operations like anheuser-busch InBev or Molson Coors or whatever those plants are are typically going to be way safer than the average you know small craft brewery um that has far less experience with creating safe work environments with you know, protocols and, and um, uh, uh, like, operating at a, in a way that, like, keeps employees out of risky situations, right? Like, that's just um, – that comes with all of that experience and that, you know, uh, that additional capital and, and just, like, the way of doing things, right? So safety is – safety is a big one um, where workers feel like their safety isn't being prioritized. That was one that you certainly heard more of during the pandemic, um, where workers felt like owners were um, being far too cavalier about reopening, um, you know, tap rooms or reopening uh, retail environments where they were going to be forced to interact directly with customers without proper uh, personal protective equipment or without, um, you know, uh, uh, new barriers or whatever different different precautions being being taken um another is yeah i mean there's um sort of a on the underbelly of this industry uh, there is like like many other industries especially in the hospitality space there's um a pretty pervasive uh sort of um uh, i mean the most charitable way to put it is that there's a it's it's still the provenance of of you know white men predominantly i mean there's been a lot of moves to change that um at the institutional level like the brewers association has made top-down efforts to increase diversity uh within the industry um those have been i don't know somewhat successful at least um in terms of making the numbers move but i'm not sure how successful they've been in terms of promoting a different more inclusive culture um in the craft brewing industry and with a less inclusive culture with a more um sort of like monoculture 
Um, you often see uh, the rise of, you know, like social ills and uh, bad behavior such as discrimination or uh, workplace sexual abuse or um, uh, any number of, uh, you know, other sort of related maladies um, that workers just don't, individual workers just lack the means to be able to protect themselves from. Um, you know, there's, in 2021, uh, there was sort of a groundswell of uh, frustration around, especially from women and non-binary people who worked in the industry, around the lack of action, um, you know, being taken to make workplaces more safe and more secure for them, um, you know, from customers who had gotten unruly or had gotten um, you know, would would act inappropriately towards them or predatorily towards them, and also managers and other employees who would do the same thing. Um, and so you saw, I think, a real, you know, sort of pent-up frustration that just spilled out into the open in 2021 across the industry, sweeping the industry. Some people, you know, referred to it as Craft Beer's Me Too moment um, that uh, I think people, um, you know, it just represented how fed up uh, women and non-binary people and, and workers from marginalized uh, communities, um, you know, felt with the status quo in the craft brewing industry. And so that's another thing that, um, you know, is, is a persistent complaint and is one that um, organizing, you know, there's no silver bullet there. Unions don't magically make sexual abuse go away. Uh and certainly as organizations, they're, you know, like any other, they're fallible. Um, but uh, they give workers a framework for pursuing, um, you know, uh, uh, remedies for those, uh, those problems when they experience them and also give workers the opportunity to be at the bargaining table and demand, you know, proactive solutions to reduce the incidences of those things happening. So that's obviously, uh, you know, big, big part of, um, you know, what is driving an increased interest in uh, organizing as well. Beyond that, though, um, it's all the boring stuff, all the basic <laughs> stuff. They want, they want more money. They, they want better, you know, healthcare. They want uh, more, you know, uh, more time off or, or better scheduling. Scheduling is a big thing. They, they don't appreciate sort of. Uh, a lot of times, you'll hear. You know, scheduling is last minute, and it's not done with respect to their time. Um, they don't have two days off in a row. Um, basic, basic stuff that affects, you know, basically every service sector. Um, those are things that I think are not endemic to craft brewing, but, again, um, they're one of the, you know, they're, they're a pain point that I think a lot of craft brewing workers uh, have seen the need to organize around. Yeah, and let's maybe – talk a minute about some successful efforts to ameliorate some of these issues um, from your reporting. Could you say about how unions um, successfully formed at Fair State and Minneapolis, Elysian and Seattle Anchor and San Francisco, or there's a brewing union in Georgia. I mean, you don't have to talk about all of those, but um, maybe give us a sense of what it, what it looks like on the ground. Sure. I think, you know, the organizing efforts across the craft brewing industry are, I think they stand out because of how few of them there are compared to the size 
of the industry based on like the number of shops overall. Um, but these are green shoots that need to be covered. And I certainly, or I feel they need to be covered and I've certainly focused on them because I think they represent, you know, opportunities for organized labor to make inroads with, uh, with, you know, service industry sector that um, has, you know, been exploited and continues to be exploited. Um, one of the big ones that I covered uh, about five years ago Almost, yeah. Um, was, was Anchor Brewing Company out in San Francisco, um, an iconic old brewery. It had been around for um, since like 1876, I want to say, is when it first started brewing. And um, workers there decided to organize with the International Longshore and Warehouse Worker uh, Union, um, local, I think it was Local 6, um, because they felt that they were not being treated well. They were not being um, paid enough to live in San Francisco. Um, so a lot of them were having to commute really far to find affordable housing. Um, they they were worried about, and it turned out rightly worried about um, anchors, you know, sort of management within um, Sapporo uh, USA's portfolio. Um, which is the subsidiary of the Japanese brewing conglomerate that acquired Anchor in 2017. Um, those were all points of concern um, for those Anchor workers. They organized, they succeeded in winning their union election despite some pretty stiff resistance from the company. Um, and they, they, uh, they negotiated a first contract and then successfully ne negotiated a second contract just earlier this year. Um, and then, uh, Sapporo sort of unceremoniously, um, you know, about two months ago at this point, just shut uh, the company down entirely, claiming they had lost money and decided to cut bait. Um, as a result of the uh, of the workers having formed a union, they were able to negotiate more aggressively with Sapporo over um, terms of severance uh, and um, make sure that you know people who'd worked there for 30 years or whatever were being taken care of uh, commensurate with that amount of service that they had given to the company. So unions don't really like stop that stuff from happening. And I think that anyone, uh, you know, who's honest with, uh, you know, about like the labor movement would say that uh, unions don't like magically fix um, things that are like wrong with the business. They just give workers an like in a way of pursuing, um, you know, a more fair treatment um, than they'd otherwise be able to demand on their own. And so anchor workers weren't able to stop the company from shutting it down. Um, they were able to protect themselves more in the case of that closure. Um, Fair State Brewing Cooperative in, in the Twin Cities, yeah, they, they organized. Um, they had a pretty quick and successful drive. Um, they also, some of those workers helped on a drive at Surly Brewing, uh, in Minneapolis, which was not successful, it was really bitterly, uh, contested, um, by the company. The company, you know, was taking pretty standard anti-union practices, uh, and, and was able to bust that drive. They lost by like a single vote. It was really sad. Um, hmm. the, uh, the what's another one that we're oh uh, the brewing union of georgia gosh that's still going on uh workers at creature comforts brewing company in athens georgia 
um, have been trying for since January 2023. Of uh, they've been trying to organize as the Independent Brewing Union of Georgia. The company has fought it every step of the way. Um, they still have not yet had an opportunity to have a union election. They're, uh, they should hopefully soon. Um, that drives, I think, demonstrates how long and drawn out um, the process can be, um, which works to uh, employers' advantages. The bosses know that the longer they can draw out a union drive, um, the more discouraging it gets. Uh, people leave. Um, you know, there's there's just an, a ton of ways that they can work the work the rest to try to flip the ball and their flip the coin in their favor, um, so that when the election comes finally, if it ever comes, um, you know, maybe enough workers vote against it and they've defeated the drive. So that's there's there's a lot of that uh, having gone on at Burning Union of Georgia and Creature Comforts, and I'll be checking in with them soon to find out what the latest is because like I said, it's been a very drawn out process there, probably about nine months. Um, mm. There's, there are others, uh, you know, Elysian and Widmer uh, in the Pacific Northwest, um, both recently uh, elected to organize with the Teamsters. Um, but I think we're still, uh, we have yet to see like a watershed moment for organizing the craft brewing industry. Frankly, I'm surprised. Um, I really thought that that, groundswell that I described in 2021 over treatment of women and non-binary people, I thought that that would trigger uh, more organizing, frankly, than it did. Um, I think part of the problem is that it, it people just are not in this country, just generally, not just the craft brewing industry, people are still now just kind of waking up to what unions are and, and what they can be. Um, because we don't, we don't, haven't learned about them in schools or, you know, we very, very briefly learn about them. They're not talked about nearly as much in popular culture as they used to be. Yeah, that's fascinating, Dave. Dave, I just want to jump in here and remind listeners that you're listening to a public affair on community radio, WORT 89.9 FM. Our guest today is journalist Dave Infante, and we're talking about unions in the craft brewing industry. In the last 10 minutes of the show, if you have a question for Dave, give us a call. We're at 608 Two five six two zero zero one. Back at you, Dave. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I hate that I was rambling and you had to cut me off. My bad. It's all good. <laughs> you were you were talking about like just the culture shift and maybe people understanding um, how unions work. And I don't know. Maybe it's a good time to connect this to Wisconsin because I think you know I you're not with me here in Wisconsin right now, but it's an interesting place to be talking about beer and labor. We have such a robust drinking culture that we were named the drunkest state in two, 2022. And I mean, yeah. I, I know that statistic doesn't directly correlate to craft beer, but people still drink here and they drink a lot of beer. Um, and that's coupled with the fact that the state is pretty anti-union. Um, you know, you could think of the passing of Act 10 in 2011, which removed collective bargaining for public sector employees. So those two things combined make Wisconsin interesting to me to be thinking about this conversation. And I want to pose to you, um, what, less can, what lessons can Wisconsin pra- craft breweries learn from other brewery, brewers in other states or vice versa? I think that the any craft brewery that, you know, in Wisconsin that's thinking about workers that are thinking about unionizing, thinking about, um, you know, collectively bargaining and seeing how it's gone in other parts of the country. Um, I think like there's a few big t- 
takeaways. One is that it's absolutely not easy. Um, the deck is stacked against labor organizing in this com- in this country, um, and has been for the last you know forty plus years, uh, basically ever since Reagan took office. Um, that's not an organic shift. That's something that you know right wing uh, uh, right wing concerns or interests have pursued really aggressively and spent millions and millions of dollars promoting. Right, right to work, for example, uh, Wisconsin's a right to work state. Like that's not a coincidence. Like that was that's the product of a of a sustained you know political spending campaign. Um, but you've got to that's still the reality that you're, you'd be organizing under if you were going to organize in Wisconsin. And mm-hmm. so I think you have to be mindful of the fact that it's going to be a challenge. Um, you have to, um, I think it's worthwhile um, and people's opinions differ on this, but it, I, as a as sort of a more um, like careful or reserved piece of advice I would put out there, like, pursue other options for improving your work conditions, like have conversations with your managers, like try to, uh, you know, make your life, your work life better. Try to, um, you know, get concessions for you and your fellow coworkers. There are managers out there who want to do right by their workers. There are bosses who want to, you know, proactively improve working conditions at the companies they run. I'm not convinced that, those people don't exist. I think that it's fair if you have a serious, you know, um, if you're, if you're, if you care enough about a company to want to stay there and organize a union there, I would, I would argue that you should probably care about it enough to try to, you know, pursue the, the, the less intense options first and exhaust those options first before um before choosing to organize i mean organizing is long hard work and i think it's it's worthwhile and righteous work and i'm not trying to to say that it ought not be taken or it's a path that ought not be taken um but i also i urge workers to balance that against you know they they it's it's a huge undertaking and it's if you can if you can figure out easier ways to get it done, then maybe those are better uh, or easier or more straightforward options for creating change in your workplace. That's for each individual worker to decide. Um, And obviously the situations differ dramatically, even shop to shop. But I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, I think something else that they should take note of is the fact that union you know, pro-union sentiment in this country is at historic highs in our lifetime. I mean, I think the Pew or Gallup, the last Gallup poll that I saw was something like 67%. The year prior was like 71%. We're, we're living in a, a, a huge moment of pro-labor sentiment um, across the country. And I think Wisconsin brewers, brewery workers or any other, um, you know, should expect or can at least hope to um, receive support from community members um, if they do choose to form a union because people in this country see, um, you know, just the dramatic inequality that has sort of been writ large ever since, uh, ever since, you know, the Reagan 80s um, and they see the way that impacts communities and they want um, they, they speak clearly that they want, you know, that to not be the case. And so if a union is something that workers at Wisconsin breweries choose to form, 
um, I think there's there's an odds-on chance that they're going to experience, uh, you know, support from the community when they do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, Dave, let me, in about two minutes we've got left, um, just get your, your thoughts, and this is um, something I've been keeping an eye on just in, in general, but what's your insight into the rise of contract brewing facilities, these um, organizations that kind of pitch themselves as like an incubator for other small breweries to get them off the ground. Presumably this could open up access to aspiring and unrepresented or underrepresented brewers. Is, is this a direction that craft beer is going? Uh, yeah. I mean, to some extent, contract brewing has always, been, always has been around. Um, it's, it's not a new concept. I think there's some interesting models out there that have kind of made it more accessible at lower volumes to more brewers. And certainly I think there's a place for it in the market. Um, you know, capital expenditure to launch a brewery is enormous. So if there's a way to start a brand and, you know, kind of hone it um, and develop it without making that huge outlay, I think that's certainly attractive. I don't think there's much going on there in terms of like, or at least not that I'm aware of in terms of like, um, I don't, I don't know that it really relates to, the conversation we're having about um, like organizing as mm. much, but um, it's still labor. So I suppose uh, if, if workers at a contract brewer wanted to organize, they would certainly be eligible to as well. But, um, but yeah, no, I think, I don't think that that's going to be a major part of the craft brewing industry moving forward. Um, but I'm heartened to see it coming on. I think the more, you know, diverse model for producing good, exciting beer that people want to drink, um, the, the healthier and more competitive the industry is overall. I mean, I think contract brewers play an important role in creating the health of that market. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting. Last little tidbit there. Is there any final takeaway that you want to share with our listeners from your experience reporting on this? Well, I think we hit it all, man. Yeah. You, yeah. You had a great interview. I think, uh, yeah, the biggest, the biggest thing I would say is that, you know, uh, organizing is hard because, um, the deck has been the deck has been deliberately stacked against workers and brewery workers that want to organize, um, you know, should be aware of the realities and the challenges that go into it. That's not uh, to discourage them, but I think everyone deserves to understand, you know, what they're getting themselves into uh, when they when they choose uh, when they choose to organize. Yeah. Well, Dave, thank you for joining us today. If you want to check out more of Dave's work, you can find him on VinePair listen to his podcast tap lines or subscribe to his independent newsletter on drinking culture called fingers. And you've been listening to a public affair. Thanks to our engineer, my man, Andrew Thomas, our producer, Jade, Isiri Ramos and our receptionist, Amy Douglas Haynes is your regular host on the program. And I'm Sarah Gabler. Keep it tuned here for your community sponsored station. W O R T 89.9 FM Madison up next. Check out Madison book beat. Stu Levitan is in conversation with Joyce Carol Oates. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream. Media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that would never be reported.